evening, we drive to this house, and I don't know if you've ever watched a show called Narcos, but I mean, this was a scary house, big metal bars on the windows, Dobermans in the garden, and my dad and one of the other members of staff would go up, and they'd illegally change their money into US dollars. Yeah. And then that night, we'd go home, and we'd take the US dollars and we'd hide them typically in the old 35 millimeter film canisters and then sort of hide them around the house. Businesses over the long term need to make money. Profit is good, economic growth is good, but they also need to do it in a way that doesn't destroy the planet or have a negative impact on the people or communities that it employs or it works with. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Ambassador, thank you for joining me on Purposely, Rob. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. I normally ask my guests as a sort of opening question about organisational mission, but it struck me that actually with you, you have your own mission. What is it? My mission is uh, financial well-being in a world worth living in. And I suppose what I've tried to do over the last few years using a concept called Igikaye is try and map, you know, what I what I love doing, uh, what I think I'm good at and can make an impact, uh, what the world needs, uh, and ideally, you know, something I can get paid for, for for my skills. And kind of at the epicenter of that, uh, for me personally, is is financial well-being in a world worth living in. So if you if you look at my career and lots of things I do, basically they fall under either helping with financial well-being or, or helping with a world worth living in. Probably a great place to start is sort of go back to the beginning. But one of your incredible life experiences is um, some time spent as a child in Argentina. Your parents are both teachers. But you, why I wanted to pick on that particular is that's where you learned some of your understanding of money or the value of, of financial literacy. Is that right? That's right. And interestingly, this weekend, my my daughter lost a tooth and obviously the, the tooth fairy paid a visit in the middle of the night. And it reminded me that when I lost my tooth at similar age in Argentina, uh, I got a million pesos. And I was telling my daughter this and she said, Daddy, you got a million pesos. I was trying to explain to her that a million pesos wasn't very much. In fact, you could buy you one chocolate bar, so, you know, like 50p. Uh, in today's money and and she just couldn't get her head around it so she's saying so like something expensive like a car would be hundreds of millions of pesos and and I said yes and tried to start she's smart to have a conversation Mm -hmm. about money and inflation so yeah my parents moved to teach at a school called St Andrew Scott School in Buenos Aires and we moved out in end of 85 so I would have been about seven years old and the interesting thing about Argentina in that period, well, many interesting things, uh, but in the context of money was inflation was running at over 30% a month. So imagine being paid and then at the end of the month, you can buy what you can buy with it is worth 30% less than it is right now. To put that in context, prices changed every day. And so at the end of each month, mum and dad would literally get paid a wad of cash and we would then go and do the monthly shop, you know, haircuts, yeah. we needed new school shoes or jumpers, do all of that. Going to the supermarket was fun for me and my sister because 
prices would be changing intraday. And actually, if you could buy the, if you could get hold of the item at the morning price, then you, that's the price you paid for. So if you could get it before people were literally going around the supermarket with a, a price gun, just changing the prices. Yeah. Uh, so that was always quite fun for me. But then in the evening, we drive to this house. And I don't know if you've ever watched a show called Narcos, but I mean, this was a scary house, big metal bars on the windows, Dobermans in the garden. And my dad and one of the other members of staff would go up and they'd illegally change their money into US dollars. Yeah. And then that night we'd go home and we'd take the US dollars and we'd hide them typically in the old 35 millimeter film canisters and then sort of hide them around the house. So remember, I'm seven years old, my sister's five, and this is normal. And I suppose, why are we doing that? Well, there were two reasons. One is inflation. And the second thing is that people didn't trust putting their money in the banks. Yeah. So that kind of taught me this idea that that sort of money, I suppose, unlike if you brought up in the UK, we just trust the Bank of England. You trust the banks to pay you money. It's not something you worry about. The second big lesson for me was... So St. Andrew's Scott School is a very interesting school. It was basically either expat kids living in Argentina or extremely wealthy Argentinians. So Argentina has a very extreme sort of Gini uh, coefficient. So that means extremely wealthy and extremely poor and no middle class. So we were this kind of non-existent middle class and didn't really have much money. We were better off than the poor people in Argentina, but we're certainly nothing like the, 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 the children and families who went to this school. And I used to see the kids at lunchtime drink their Coca-Cola bottles or drink their Fanta, and then just leave the bottles in the playground. Well, I used to then go and collect those bottles and then take them to the shop, and then they'd give me you know, the equivalent of 5p a bottle in return. So I'd come home every day from school with, with money, and my parents would be like, oh, where did you get that money from? And I was like, oh, well, I just, you know, I collected up the... Uh, leftover bottles, took it to the shop and, and, and got the money back. I'm age seven at this point. So that's a key life lesson for me, that there's opportunities to make money everywhere. You just need to spot those opportunities and seek them out. And obviously, the second big one is once you've got your money, is keeping hold of it, whether it be from inflation or because you can't trust leaving it in the bank, are really important life skills to learn. Absolutely. And so you found yourself back in the UK and went to Oxford University and you ended up going into a career in finance. I'm thinking real parallels with last year, like working from home, but you left your, uh, you found yourself leaving a successful finance job or role and going out on your own and, and launching your own company, inspired by those sort of early entrepreneurial traits, like that kind of desire to be in charge of your own destiny, do you think, or just thinking big and, and thinking in terms of Reddington at this point? Yeah. I mean, I was at Merrill Lynch and my career was just taking off and at the age of 27 I, I went to Merrill Lynch and said oh, I want to I want to retire uh, I didn't want to retire but that would that meant I could if I retired I could keep the Merrill Lynch equity that I'd been uh, given no it wasn't because of the this sort of sense of independence that was actually just a very clear belief that I had with my co-founder a guy called Dawid Kanotiahulu who we worked together at Merrill Lynch was that we were sat there as investment banks we were trying to convince pension funds that there was a better way to manage their their risks specifically to long-dated interest rate and inflation risk and that there was a way that they could hedge that risk and still invest to pay all of their members the challenge was that because we worked for investment banks we were seen as conflicted and motivated 
by wanting to sort of do some long data derivative transactions. And so it was just really simple, which was, okay, well, why don't we sort of leave investment banking and why don't we become uh, investment consultants and take on the big established players of, you know, Watson Wire, Mercer, uh, Aon Hewitt at the time and show clients that there, there was a better way and that you could, in the UK anyway, you could reduce your deficit, you could reduce your risk, and you could grow your your way out of it. And so that was the idea behind Reddington. And really was one day you gave your notice and packed up, went home and started from your bedroom. Is that how, how it went? Yeah. So I think Dawid left on the 6th of March, 2006. And yeah, as I say, I went into uh, retire. And I remember... Uh, a very senior person at Merrill Lynch sitting down with me to try and explain to me why my decision was wrong. Uh, and he took out his business card, which had a, the bull, which is the logo for Merrill Lynch. And he said, look, Rob, look at that. He said, that's the bull of Merrill Lynch. What you don't understand is that people talk to you because you work for Merrill Lynch. And when you leave here and set up your own business, you're a nobody and no one will want to talk to you. And you've got such a bright career here. What are you doing? You should stay. Uh, that, that wasn't the most motivational, convincing <laughs> stay, stay uh, speech uh, I've, I've ever had. And, and, and as you know, I, I, I decided to leave and, 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 and tell at Reddington. But I think it did teach me an important lesson, which is uh, he did kind of have a point that obviously brands, that, that, that we put a lot of store in the organizations that we work for or that we interact with. And... And Dowd and I starting a business from scratch, and we were literally oper- operating out of his house and the spare bedroom in, in my flat, trying to convince large institutional pension funds and companies to, to work with us and hire us was always going to be a, a Herculean task. So and in a way, it was helpful very early on to establish this idea of, of a sort of brand and trust and credibility that people would want to do business with us. Yeah. And did you have um, kind of contrasting skills and, and uh, experience that you had that you could um, work together quite well or did, were you quite similar? Both. I think Dowd and I are very purpose-driven. We're both very outward-going uh, people, but we are, in other areas, we're, we're very different. And I think that that's the strength. And I there's this constant debate about whether kind of co-leaders of businesses works or not. And typically the consensus is that you should only have one boss. But, but you know, I think we really complemented each other. And, you know, Dad and I are about 15 years apart in age. We're best friends. Dawid was best man at my wedding. Uh, my kids adore Dawid. I mean, don't get me wrong. We've had some ups and downs. I mean, when you start a business, in fact, we started two businesses together. It's like a marriage. You have to work at the relationship. There have definitely been highs and lows in our relationship. Starting Reddington, it struck me that actually it was a purposeful company and it was about delivering commercial value, but it was also about making a difference to people's lives. Tell us about how you developed that part of it in terms of um, making a difference to people's lives. Building on the fact that we kind of founded Reddington with this kind of desire to, to do to pensions, it, it was probably about 2012, so about six years in, we're still very much... A startup, and we were applying for RFPs. And part of those requests for presentations say, well, what's your CSR strategy policy? And I didn't want to just say, oh, yeah, well, we volunteer and we plant trees and we paint fences. 
and 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 I was very lucky actually. I got introduced someone who was very similar to someone who's been on your podcast before, so Steve Wickham, and he sort of specialised in advising individuals and companies about giving back. And he said to me, he said, "Look, Rob, the best companies." don't sort of give away money or time, they kind of give away their intellectual property. Uh, and two examples are, one is IKEA, they ring fence their sort of design and manufacturing capability to, uh, and then give that to like people like Medicine and Frontier to build flat pack hospitals or, or, or build flat back accommodation that can be dropped into a country after a, a natural disaster. And the second is Pret-a-Manger. They've they've invested in, or basically they then at the end of the day use the same distribution capability to collect up all the leftover food, uh, and then take it to various homeless, uh, dedicated homeless uh, charities in the cities and towns they operate in, and, and and make sure that that food gets gets distributed out. And so his challenge to me is, what what does that look like for you? And I was like, okay. So it's 2012, and in the UK, this uh, auto-enrolment has just come out, which is this idea that companies need to automatically enroll employees into a pension. Now, what was obvious to me, and I remember I'm, we're advising these kind of large defined benefit pension funds, is they were now close to new members. And in fact, many of these companies were now, they were unaffordable, and they were closing them full stop, and they were shifting to this new defined contribution pension. The challenge is, is that you'd have employees, two employees sat next to each other, maybe five years apart, uh, and they'd have completely different benefits, but they didn't, they didn't really know. So if you had a defined benefit pension, the company you work for is taking all the responsibility to make sure that you have an inflation-linked income for the rest of your life. Uh, in a defined contribution, that's all it's doing. You're just putting in a certain amount of money. You have to decide where to invest it. Uh, you have to decide uh, how to spend it when 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 you retire. And it was clear to me that people just didn't really understand the the, the difference. The, and then to compound that, it was you know there was no financial education in the UK, and in fact, financial education was only put on the secondary school syllabus in in 2014. And we'll come back to that. Uh, and uh, there's this amazing uh, lady called Anna Maria Lusardi who works at George Washington University, and she's created this kind of financial literacy test. She has three questions, and it's simply, if you have £100 and interest rates are 2%, in a year time, do you have 102, 100, 98? I don't know. So question one. Question two, if you put your money away for two years and inflation's running at 3%, in two years' time, can you buy more with your money, the same, less, or I don't know? And three, if you invest your money, are you better off investing in a single share or in a mutual fund, which is a basket of shares? Uh, you know, A, the single share, B, the mutual fund, C, I don't know. Turns out that basically in the UK, in Australia, in the US, Canada, around the world, only about a third of adults can get those three questions right. Mm. And a third of adults basically say, I don't know to all three questions. So that is the level of financial literacy. And I, I thought, wow. And, and so, yeah, this is where I then reflected on the fact, how was it that I knew and understood these things? And I realized obviously my, my circumstance is pretty unique. Uh, and so, adopting the Sir Richard Branson, screw it, just do it mindset, we we, we, we just started uh, teaching. Uh, we invited like kids in from local schools to our offices to come in and we started teaching them about uh, 
about money and how to 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 save money and the importance of budgeting. Uh, and actually, when we started, we we were really focused on secondary school kids. Uh, and then in 2013, there was some research done by Cambridge University for uh, the Money Advice Service, which basically showed that our money saving habits are learned by the age of seven, which is why we then pivoted uh, and and now Red Start is really focused on on primary school uh, education. So from reception, which is four to five, uh, right the way through up to 11 plus. Wonderful. And so that became its own entity that sort of um, sits alongside uh, Reddington um, and, you know, has got its it hired staff, patrons, volunteers, um, and it's kind of scaling and it's got a it's got a big goal, isn't it? It's like a million children they want to change their lives of. Yeah, I mean so yeah, so you're right. So it went from a CSR program to uh it, we then span it off as a charity, so it has its own so it's what's called an OCIO and it has its own trustee board and an independent chair. And our mission now is to kind of change the game. It was to help a million young children to learn how to budget, save, invest, and give back. Now it's much more about how do we change the system? So as I said earlier, financial education only got put in the school syllabus in the UK in 2014, and that was only at secondary school level. And yet even today, about 45% of, only 45% of schools actually deliver that financial education. And so what we, what we're doing is we're focusing on 30 schools across the UK uh, we've delivered, we've de- developed a kind of like step ladder of change. So starting with the reception, using the collateral from a book I wrote called Save Your Acorns, and then using our game. So we've mapped it to the school curriculum and, and various key learnings. And we're going to work with these 30 schools over six years to create a comprehensive longitudinal study, which we hope will evidence that financial education really works and therefore be able to convince the Department of Education that that it should be included as part of primary school syllabus in the UK. And then that way, we will not just impact, if we achieve that, it won't just be a million children. I think there are, uh, I'm trying to think how many, there's like five, six million children in the UK in primary school. Phenomenal. Um, and how good are your children with um, with finances? Well, so this is fascinating. So there was a, a study done in, in Denmark uh, that shows uh, this idea is kind of savers and spenders, and 10% of us are just naturally savers. Uh, they're they're pretty. I, I, yeah, the reality is our our girls are probably savvier than 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 most. They're probably not as savvy as me and my sister were at at, at seven. But you know, my seven year old has a pocket money app. Pocket money, they both learn chores, and if they want to buy stuff, they have to buy it themselves. If they want to buy something bigger, they have to come up with a plan and, and budget for it and all the rest. So I think they certainly probably understand more more about money than the average boy or girl their age. So 2017-18 comes around, and you decide to do something big in your life, which is to step away from Reddington as an employee. Was that a particularly difficult decision? Because from this is one thing I've been wanting to ask you for a long time is how do you go from your own set of toys to becoming an employee again uh, at St. James's Place and you took on the d- director of investment role? I suppose like everything in life, there were sort of push and, and, and pull factors. And actually, I think this goes back to purpose and what motivates me and sort of financial well-being in a, in a world worth living in. 
So the push factors, interestingly, and this is always the entrepreneur's dilemma, is at some point for a company to succeed and be a 100-year business. I actually wrote a blog in 2012 setting out sort of Reddington's 100-year vision, which at the time people thought I was a bit crazy, but I think now is a bit more accepted as, as actually a good idea and a good thing to think about. But when you think about that, by definition, it cannot include the founders. In 2017, we tried to go out and do a small private equity fundraise. We were trying to expand the business. We needed some capital to grow. And when you go to investors and ask for money, it's a brutal process. And you get some really quite candid feedback. And they came back with some really wonderful stuff about our business. We love your purpose. We love your culture. You have amazing clients. They work with you for a long time. These are all, all the good things. But then here are all the things that are bad about your business. But one of the key questions was, can Reddington as a business be successful without the two founders, Dowd and Rob, in it? Mm. It's a great question. I suppose that's always, if you're an investor, you, you've got this kind of key person risk. And therefore, what, what we both realized is actually for the long-term success of the business, it's all about your ability to create. And that, that was always our goal was to, the, the, you know, the business was always Reddington. Uh, it, it was always about creating a culture and an organization. It wasn't you know, we didn't name the business after our, ourselves, right? Yeah. And so that was a bit of our aha moment that actually to for Reddington to be successful in the long term, we needed to to step back and we needed to create that succession plan and, and leadership uh, capability in the business to to take it on its next journey. So that's kind of the, the sort of push factor. Mm. The, the pull factor is, I suppose, at Reddington, I'd, I was really focused on working with large pension funds, defined benefit pension funds and advising the trustees. I did a little bit of work on defined contribution, but actually my passion was always to be closer to end people and their financial decision-making. And yeah, there's no one, certainly in the UK, there's no one bigger than SJP. Right now we have 850,000 clients. We have almost 150 billion pounds worth of their, their wealth that we have to invest. At the time, it was probably like 750,000 clients when I joined and it was probably uh, about 96 billion pounds. And so I actually got approached by David Lamb, who was the previous person in, in the role. And he sort of shared with me that he was retiring and that they were running a process to find their successor. Yeah. And it was a bit sort of sliding doors, if I'm honest, that the, in a way, those two conversations happened at the same time, which was the investors came back to us and said, we like your business, but uh, we're worried about, you know, can, can the business succeed and grow without you in it? And if you can prove to us that it can, we'd love to invest. In fact, if you can, we think it's worth even more money. And at the same time, David Lamb asked me this question and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even on, on my radar. Uh, and, and that's why I just sat down and, you know, mapped it back to my Ikikaye and thought, yeah, this is, this is a, I mean, what, what a brilliant business to be able to try and see if I can deliver, continue to deliver financial well-being in a world worth living in. Yeah, I suppose the lucky thing is you never cease being the co-founder of a business, and I still own shares uh, in that business. So you know, it's a bit like Toy Story. I've still got my Reddington toys <laughs> in the house. Uh, I just, yeah, you know, I, I I just don't play with them day to day. Yeah, I really like what you say. Like I uh, had something to do with St James's Place, and I got a chance to look at your speech at one of their seminars. Uh, and um, what really resonates with me is is the but when you really focus on in a world worth living in, which is absolutely key, right? So you've got, like you said, 150 billion pounds worth of funds under management or more um, that you're responsible for. When you wake up in the morning, when you're lying out your first coffee, you must think, wow. Um, but in terms of... Uh, 
taking St. James's place down that responsible investment journey um, and ensuring that they, you know, we utilize that capital to grow the capital, but also to do good with it. Um, did you, were your pitch when you, you know, put your hat in the ring to get that job, was that, was, was your vision pretty locked in at that point, you know, that you were going to help SJP go down that responsible investment route um, as, it's, as it has clearly been the case over the last few years? It was certainly my vision. I'm not sure they, I mean, they certainly didn't ask me to, to, to put that in. I, that, that's, you've got to remember that I've been working, you know, at the time in 2015, 2016, I'd worked with the HSBC pension fund and, and legal and general investment management and kind of co-designed and created the future world fund. You know, I'd got Reddington to sign up to the UNPRI. I was advising some of the largest pension funds in the UK to, to integrate environmental, social and governance factors. So, in my institutional world, it was very clear that responsible investing was the only to, way to invest going forward. A is the best way to create long-term investment performance, so not necessarily short-term quarterly performance, but to create performance over sustained periods uh, over the decades to come. The interesting thing about the sort of retail market is it's sort of almost running sort of five to 10 years behind the institutional world. I also got to work with some large Canadian and Dutch pension funds and they're they're even further down the road. So for me, responsible investing was pretty much known, known, known. And and I thought there was a real opportunity to be able to take SJP and make it the leading wealth manager in this in, in this space. And mm. and the structure of the business means that we can really have well, we have real scale and we have real influence. And and so there was an ability to do it really authentically. And that resonated clearly with the board when they interviewed you. I guess it's been a journey for you. Like last year was that kind of last two years, your first years at St. James's Place and you had COVID to deal with. And also you're kind of imparting your vision on, you know, the whole partnership. Uh, all of those clients that you talked about, um, I guess it hasn't been without its challenges. That's fair to say. I, look, look I, the reality is I, I wasn't brought in to, to drive that. I was brought in to say, how, do, how can you help us grow our capacity? How can you make sure that we continue to deliver uh, you know, superior performance uh, as we grow to, to, to help our clients? So the, really the conversation was, was around that. It's not been easy and it, you know, it's nearly three years I've been in role. And I think first and foremost is to make the point that this is about, first and foremost, this needs to deliver financial well-being, And that means we need to grow our clients' money faster than inflation. This is not a charitable thing to do. Uh, this is something that has a, a very clear economic uh, rationale as a way to make profit and a way to make money for our clients' investments, which is our, our primary purpose. It just so happens that how we invest our money can have a profound impact on businesses. And at a very simplistic level, it's just really this idea that companies are impacted by the planet. Mm. You know, if there's a flood or if there are fires or if there's drought, that impacts the supply chain. You might not have food to grow or or, or your supply chain may get damaged, or you might have electricity lines down. And then companies have a positive or in negative impact on the planet. I mean, the most obvious being the way we, you know, we create energy. You know, how do we make electricity? Is it from oil and gas, or is it from renewable? But also the way we carry out agriculture, the way we farm, our supply chains, etc. And so, when you step back from it, it's it's kind of obvious, really, that the businesses over the long term need to make money. Profit is good. Economic growth is good. But they also need to do it in a way that doesn't 
destroy the planet or have a negative impact on the people or communities that it employs or it works with. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's happened is that that, that has really come through. Underneath this is this kind of idea that we need to shift our economic system from what, what, what I call a linear economy, which is a take, make, waste one. So we take stuff out the ground, we make stuff, and then we're finished with it, we waste it, uh, to a circular economy where you know we need to ask ourselves, can we reuse it? Can we recycle it? Can we repurpose it? And you know, more and more businesses are going this way. You know, Sony is a great example. Uh, you know, 99% of their products are made from recycled, repurposed materials. Nike have made this journey. And so more and more of their clothes and their trainers are made from recycled and repurposed materials. And guess what? These businesses are successful. They're making money. They're growing their revenues and they're growing their profits. And that, yeah, that's the that's the win-win opportunity. It's not like separating these things out. You know, this purpose and this commercial, it's somehow separate. Um, you know, the, the two things uh, sit together. Before your arrival, uh, St. James's Place had had a you know, huge, successful charitable foundation, uh, which was sort of ahead of its time at the time, in the early 90s when it was formed. And it sort of started to do a bit of um, financial education and, and understood or started to talk about how the importance of that to people's lives. I imagine you've taken a bit more than a watching brief on, you know, helping grow that financial education piece with your experience and, and your and Red Start. Yeah. I mean, and again, SJP's purpose is to kind of give you the confidence to create the future that you want. And it's really about helping you embrace your, your tomorrow. And so our core business is advice. And therefore, you know, giving people that sort of financial security, financial well-being. Uh, and then what we've realized is in addition to the foundation, which is, I think, you know, over 100 million pounds now and, you know, the sixth largest corporate charity in the UK, mm. where can we have focus and, and where can we have impact? So at a much grander scale. So the, the foundation is brilliant because it helps lots of charities all over the UK and, and, and allows partners, and employees to, 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 to get involved. But but how can we make a, a difference? And so uh, SJP has been trying to pull together its various financial education programs. So actually it works with Red Start to deliver at primary school level. It already has a well-established secondary school program. A lot of the partners do what I call sort of financial education, financial well-being in the workplace, where they go into companies or they do, you know, webinars and just sort of, you know, train and educate employees about basic financial decisions that they make. And so really what, what SAP is trying to do now is kind of pull together all of its collateral and, and, and create it in a coherent way across the full life cycle. So, you know, of our 850,000 clients, we have clients who are, who are babies and we have you know, quite a few clients who are over 100 years old. And so what the team are now doing is is pulling together that financial education material that can either be delivered to schools, primary, secondary, early careers, that transition into work, which is really important, uh, and then right the way through to sort of financial well-being in the workplace. And then obviously our core business is that we give clients financial advice. We, we help them make better decisions about uh, what to do with their money. And changing tack before we wrap up, in terms of your own motivation and, and your inspiration, do you have mentors? Yeah, I, I well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm part of a group called YPO, which is 
uh, a group that I joined when I was at Reddington, which was this idea that leadership is a, a lonely place. And, and, and so uh, you're put together with fellow entrepreneurs and you meet monthly and you follow a very sort of specific process. It's almost like group therapy uh, to help you think about stuff. And the whole mindset is always learning uh, and, and how can you develop yourself as, as a leader. So that's hugely important important part of my life. I've been part of that for eight years now. It's four hours every month. Uh, so it's a big commitment, but like everything in life, you, you get out what you put in. I also have a mentor called Mike Harris. Uh, Mike Harris is quite famous in the UK. He founded First Direct, which was the first telephone bank in the UK. So it was a bank with no branches in the 80s. And, and First Direct is still known today as the number one bank for customer service in the UK, if not, if not the world. And then in 1998, he founded Egg, which was the first internet bank. Yeah. Uh, and his, his whole thing is this idea of purpose beyond money. And so it was Mike who mentored me around Reddington's purpose, you know, and what if we can transform people's financial future from uh, not knowing what to do uh, to feeling confident in control of their financial future. It was the work that I did with Mike that really helped me tap into Red Start and this idea of financial education. Mike has become a good friend of mine. And then one of my old clients used to be chair of the Aviva Staff Pension Scheme and chair of BP Pension Scheme and a, a well-known CEO of a FTSE 100 business and chair of various PLC boards. When I was joining St. James's Place, I wanted someone who had a sort of FTSE 100 PLC experience. And so uh, he, he mentors me as well. So yeah, I have a, I, I have a collection of mentors to, to help me. Wonderful. And what do you do to relax? I love to play tennis when I can. I mean, you know, with two young kids and, uh, and homeschooling, relaxing became non-existent in 2020 and, and first part of 2021. But uh, as, as we come out of lockdown, you know, we like going to the theatre, we like going to cinema, like going on holiday. And yeah, for me personally, I, I, I love to play tennis. And before I let you go, um, vision for St. James's Place in terms of the, the future and... Um, you know what you would like to be to see happen in the next five five years ten years i'm really uh, excited so you know uh next next year sjp is going to be sharing its sort of refreshed and renewed brand and and as i say it's all around this idea of helping our, our, our clients embrace their tomorrow uh, i think sjp's made some brilliant moves over the last few years it just shared its net zero commitments. You know, we're producing our, our TCFD reporting around climate change. We make a material difference to our 850,000 clients' lives. And and the business has, has grown. You know, when we're, we're, you know, we're approaching a FTSE 50 business. And I think the bigger and more successful you get, the more important it is to authentically be aligned with your purpose. And so for me, it's continuing to do what we do as a business, which is give brilliant advice to clients about how they make decisions about money that it's never been more important. I'm really excited about the work that my colleagues Vicky and Amelia are doing around financial education. I think that's that's a game changer and we can really help a lot of people with financial education. And I think the the work that my team are doing around financial well-being in a world worth living in, you know, if we keep growing the way we do, we'll be we'll we'll be 200 to 250 billion pounds by 2025 and I think we have a real responsibility not just to deliver great investment performance to our clients, but to make sure that that money is invested in a way that is a force for good. And I think that long-term thinking is a really good way forward. So massive thank you for joining me and um, good luck with the future. Thanks, Mark.
Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.